Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 24. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered round him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants, so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop, multiplying thirty, sixty, or even a hundred times. Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding, otherwise they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. 30, 60, or even a hundred times what was sown. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand? For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed. Whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do please keep that uh, passage open in the Bibles in front of you as, uh, as we look at that passage now. And let's just pray as we begin. Father God, as your word is sown, may we have fruitful hearts. Amen. So why have you come this morning? 
Why are you here today? Are you here because this is what you do every Sunday? Are you here because you want your child to grow up going to church and Sunday school? Perhaps it feels like the right thing to do. Are you here because you want to worship God? Are you here to get 30 minutes peace and quiet from the kids? Are you here because you've been invited by some friends? And what are you expecting from today? Perhaps your expectations are for a great party courtesy of the Penwardens after the service. Perhaps your expectations are for some uplifting music, a fine sermon that encourages you, an opportunity to meet friends, an opportunity to engage with something spiritual in a busy life that seems to disregard the spiritual. Well, in our passage today, there is a great multitude of people who have come, crowding round the edge of the lake to hear this man, Jesus. So many of them have come that he hops into the boat and allows the crowds to form around the little cove. Like us, they probably had numerous reasons for being there. Some had come because they were intrigued. Some had come to catch him out. Some had come because they wanted to know more. Some had come just because their friends had decided to go. And what were they expecting? Well, after years of waiting for the promised Messiah, this crowd was waiting for the one that would save Israel, the one that would liberate the Jews from their Roman overlords, the one that would bring spiritual renewal, a return to the great days of the temple, to the days when the Jewish law prevailed. And rumor had it, that this was the man. This was the one they were waiting for. This is the one that John the Baptist, that radical nomad who is now in prison, had spoken about. This is the one who had gathered a small following around him, a number of disciples, a motley crew, who had given up their former professions and followed him. This is the one who had battled with the teachers of the law, who had healed and chased out evil spirits. Some say he had taught with authority, more than that of the Pharisees. And of course, he had gone about preaching, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is near. What had he meant by that? Perhaps this is the time that he would act. Perhaps this is the time that he would do something to kick off the revolution that he was undoubtedly there to start. Was this the start of the kingdom coming, the kingdom of Israel coming to give freedom from Rome and giving the people a new beginning? So as the people sat on the shore, they'd come from many perspectives with many questions, all hoping that this person would bring something new. Do you long for the day of right things? when all will be well, when the kingdom is at hand, when evil will be trodden on, the peacemakers blessed, when justice rules, when oppression is over, when sickness, death and disease are no more. Well, so did that crowd as they sat by the lake. They expected much from this man. Yet, instead of inaugurating a revolutionary new dawn, Jesus begins to teach. The title given to me for this sermon is Jesus the Preacher. He's a teacher and a preacher. 
sitting in his boat, he shouts at the crowd, listen! You can almost imagine their anticipation, their expectation. But instead of revealing how he was going to overturn the Romans and bring liberty and salvation to the people, how he was going to be the hope of Israel, he did something quite remarkable. He told a story. In our busy lives, we come to ignore the power and importance of stories, don't we? At college this week, we've been focusing on how to plant churches, how to make new churches. And the most powerful witness has not been the theory, the concepts, but the stories of those who've actually been out and formed new churches. Our little boy's favorite program carries the catchphrase, we all love stories. And there's something so true in that, isn't there? No matter what our age. The story he tells is of a farmer who sows some seed. Now most of, it, most of us probably think we've heard this hundreds of times. We know what it means, we're probably turning off already. But let me take you back to that time at the lake, sitting, listening to Jesus, perhaps pointing to some far off hill where there was a farmer. As he explained, there was once a sower who sowed. But this isn't any old story. It's a story that has meaning. It's called a parable, and we're told that Jesus taught many things this way. They're a common way of teaching because they were short and could be easily remembered in that oral tradition. It's an illustration of spiritual truth drawn from everyday life. It has a meaning in and of itself for those that understand. Like a political cartoon, has meaning to those that can identify the symbols and characters today. But right in the middle of the passage, in verses 9 to 13, between the story and the interpretation, we have this strange section about the meaning of parables. Like us, the disciples are keen to find out what it is that Jesus means by the parable. So he tells them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. Well, this confronts us with a critical issue. I remember talking with one of the young people here in church who asked me, if the Bible is true, how is it so difficult to understand? Why didn't God make it more obvious? Why are there so many people who just don't get it? Well, they're good questions, aren't they? True questions that resonate with us all at some point in our lives. And I believe that the parable of the sower speaks directly into these questions. You'd think that 2,000 years ago, it was more obvious than it is today. For then they had Jesus in person. But it wasn't that obvious, at least not to the Pharisees, not to the Romans, not to many Jews. It was only a minority who were recognizing what Jesus was doing. Indeed, Jesus is clear in verse 12 that the nature of parables is such that their understanding will not come from intelligence, but they need revelation. Jesus seems to be saying that the very reason he uses parables is so that some will not understand. These things are said in parables so that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, and ever hearing, but never understanding. 
Jesus picks up on Isaiah's prophecy at the start of his ministry that he was to preach to a people who would never perceive and never understand. Jesus seems to be saying that this will be the effect of parables. And yet he also points to the fact that he expects some to understand. Verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And verse 13, don't you understand this parable? Both point to Jesus' expectation that some will understand. And those that will understand are those to whom the secret of the kingdom of God has been given. Jesus is driving at the fact that in the multitude in front of him, he knew that there were some who would respond and some who would not. Those that knew the secret of the kingdom were those that participated in his ministry. Those that understood that following him was more than intellectual assent, but a whole life following. It is as we follow Jesus that we become those who participate in the secret. Jesus is not creating barriers, creating a division between those on the outside and those on the inside. He's describing them, knowing that there are some that will follow and some who will not. It's a sad reality that there are some who will never accept the secret of the kingdom of God, not because of lack of intellectual understanding, not because God intentionally hides the message, but because of their own spiritual responsiveness. So what are we to make of this particular parable? Well, Mark is sometimes caricatured as the action gospel. Jesus is portrayed as the one who brings liberation. Liberation from sickness, demons, natural disasters, and ultimately liberation from death and Satan. Yet the Jesus in Mark is more than an action man. Yes, he includes far less teaching than the other gospel writers, but Mark regularly stresses the teaching ministry of Jesus and sets it on a par with his ministry of healing and exorcism. The teaching is often interwoven with action stories, but here we have one of the few examples of a large block of teaching material. Further, this parable is the first one that he narrates, presumably positioned here because it's the key to all that is to come, the key to reception of all Christ's teaching. It's a block of three examples of parables about the kingdom of God, recorded among the many that Jesus must have said. For we're told at the end of this section in verse 33 that with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. In the crowd, the people knew that this is the man who had said that the kingdom of God is at hand. And now he was going to teach what that meant. So the story starts with the sower sowing the seed. It's possible to read this as a primer on ancient agricultural practices, but this is not the point. We're not drawn to the story to ask why the sower did not take more care to sow on good ground. Jesus simply uses this as a background to shape the story. At one level, the sower is clearly Jesus, sowing the word of God amongst the crowd. But as we're drawn into the parable, the sower is also all those that follow Jesus. It's an invitation to everyone to engage in this enterprise with him, to participate in the secret of the kingdom. He sows a seed, and we're told that the seed is the word. Now, I'm no gardener, but the qualities of a seed are pretty obvious, aren't they? 
it's small in comparison to what it produces. And when it's dropped into the soil, it's not self-evident that anything will ever appear. It begins its journey where it can't be seen, obscured and lost under the soil. So the seed is key, and it's the word of God. Well, we need to be reminded of this at a time when it's less than fashionable to center on the word of God. Outdated, outmoded, inappropriate, old-fashioned. No, the word of God is central to our lives, central to the way that the kingdom will progress, central to our worship, our mission, and our growth. If you're not a follower of Jesus, perhaps if you've come along today as a visitor, wondering what this faith is about, then let me be really clear. Having the kingdom rule in your life does not come from attending church or doing the right things. It's about acknowledging we have done wrong, that we live in ways that don't please God, being sorry for those things and turning from the rule of that kingdom to the rule of God's kingdom. And the way that happens is through the word. The word in the person of Jesus himself and the revelation of God through the Bible. If you long for a different rule in your life, a different kingdom to rule, if you long for freedom from sin and life lived fully, then can I encourage you to consider this word, the one that Jesus says will bring the kingdom to your life. Isn't it bizarre that Jesus teaches that something as innocuous as a seed will upset the whole world. Looking for a revolution to bring the kingdom, his listeners hear that it is the lowly seed that brings the kingdom near. And isn't this what we look forward to at Advent? Born in an unremarkable manger, in an unremarkable town, to an unremarkable woman, this seed, this word made flesh, would change the whole world, and it will change your life too, if you permit it. But the story doesn't end with the sower and his seed. It goes on to describe three different, yet all unfruitful soils in which that seed falls. Now we can look at this story from two perspectives. From the perspective of the sower, or from the perspective of the soils. For if we are followers of Jesus and take his command seriously to go and make disciples of all nations, then we naturally place ourselves in the position of the sower as well. On this basis, we see some explanation for what happens when we tell others about Jesus. We see an explanation for why sometimes it seems to be successful and other times it doesn't. But today, I want to stay with the crowd hearing this parable. What were they to make of it? How were they participating in it? Well, I believe the primary call in the parable, our first call, if you like, before we leap to being the sower, is to ask ourselves what kind of soil we represent. This is not an apologetic for why evangelism does or doesn't work. First and foremost, it's a request for us to take a hard look at ourselves as individuals and as a community and ask what kind of soil are we? Firstly, there's the seed that falls on the hard ground where the birds feed, picking it up. You can imagine the well-trodden path that has caused the ground to harden. And so the seed, God's word, falls in places where it is wasted. 
I wonder where that hardening comes from. Is it just that these words have no impact because this just isn't your thing? You just aren't into religion. And all this church stuff is just a bit weird. Is it that the demands of the word are such that the word is wasted due to your own sense of self-respect? Who is this man? What are these words that they should have any authority over my life? Is it that you know better than the word? This was a message written years ago for a backward people, and you know better. Or is it that you already know this? You've heard the stories and the words so many times. You're so familiar with it. You know you understand it. You can even quote it. And there is nothing new from God's word that you can learn. If any of these positions resonate with you, then the seed falls on hard ground and is taken. And notice that behind this attitude, this cynicism, this hardness of heart, is Satan who comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. In his version of the story, Luke adds that this happens so that they may not believe and be saved. Friends, let us not fall into this trap. Wherever we may be in our walk with Jesus, let our hearts be soft to receive his word. Secondly, there's the seed that falls on rocky ground, which doesn't allow the seed to root. And this refers to those who hear the word of God, but like the seed that falls on the rocky soil, which has no depth to create roots, it lasts a short time before it dies. We all probably have dear friends who for a time have seemed to, to embrace the word, yet sadly they fall away. It's such a risk in a church like this. The emotional experience, the frenzy of the big congregation, the great welcome through Alpha, through baptism, only to find that faith is rootless. Mark states that when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Well, as a church in the UK, we haven't really had to face significant trouble or persecution in the recent past. Many feel that we're on the brink of a time when that may change, pointing to changes in the legal system and the media as examples. But to date, few of us have really had to face trouble or persecution because of the word. I heard this week from somebody that had been to the Lausanne Congress in South Africa. And he mentioned the testimony of some of the African bishops. One commented that when he brings new converts to faith, he promises three things. Forgiveness of sins, great joy, and great suffering. That's not a gospel that many of us are familiar with in this country. And I wonder whether there will be a time soon when the gospel of the persecuted church will once again be our gospel. And when that happens, will the gospel stand? Will the word of God continue to bear fruit in our lives? Thirdly, there's the seed that is received, but the thorns and weeds snuff out the seed's ability to find nutrients in the soil. God's word competes in our lives with other distractions which can snuff out the life of the gospel. 
Now, we all have concerns, don't we? But the key here is whether we allow them to overtake us, to overgrow us, and whether we keep room for the seed to grow, for the word to grow in our lives and the lives of those around us. It's so easy to get fixated on our concerns, financial worries over the mortgage-to-the-hilt lifestyle or the loan that you know you really shouldn't have taken out. The drive and ambition for financial success or status in our careers or education, which subtly inhibits our reception of God's word in our lives. The focus on family responsibilities, ensuring that grandpa is happy in the home, concern for the child's schooling, and that's before you begin to consider your spouse's needs. The never-ending concern for good health and long life, the upkeep of the garden and the house, sexual attractions that lead us astray, dealing with the realities of work stress or unemployment. As we hear the word, how do we cut back these weeds, these worries of life, to stop them choking the word? For these concerns can all contribute to making our soil unfruitful. Don't let these momentary concerns crowd out the best for your life. Life in God's kingdom. But this parable is not primarily about failure. Yes, some seed is lost, but the parable doesn't call us to mourn the loss of the unfruitful seed, but to celebrate the seed, the success of the harvest. Look at verse 20. Others like seed sown on good soil hear the word, accept it and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. The seed that falls on good soil produces an enormous crop. There's huge potential for those that receive God's word with faith. In Palestinian farming at the time, a great crop would produce a sevenfold harvest. Here, Jesus talks of a harvest that comes 30, 60, or even 100-fold. His emphasis is on a superabundant harvest. Those early hearers on the side of the lake would have been incredulous at the size of the harvest. This is the fruit of the word that is sown in good soils. The kingdom of God advances not because we have all the answers to all the questions we have. It advances not through clever strategies about how we organize our church or how we do evangelism. It advances through the seed of the word falling on hearts that are open to God working in their lives. The seed of the word of God does not just have a temporary impact, but a permanent one producing enduring change and enduring fruit. And this is the harvest he points to, a kingdom harvest of plenty. This is the harvest I want to be a part of. Don't you? Now some have wondered at what point salvation comes in this passage. Is it only those that produce the fruit that are saved? Or does salvation come to those that receive the word, even though the soil is unfruitful? To be honest, I don't think it's clear. What is clear to me is that salvation and the growth of the kingdom is not just about getting over a perceived line with God, praying a particular prayer. Salvation is to do with fruitfulness, it's about how we continually receive the word of God in our lives. It's about whose kingdom we are living in, the world's or God's. 
Elsewhere, Jesus is clear that fruitfulness is indelibly linked to salvation. In John's gospel, if anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. And in Matthew's gospel, there's that haunting warning that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. What matters is not just an initial profession of faith, but long-term change in belief and lifestyle. It's a question of kingdom, a question of who rules our lives, our values, and our actions. Of course, even the fruitful have setbacks. We all mess up. We all make mistakes. But the glory of the cross is that we know that there is forgiveness and restoration there. So the fruitful will endure, and it's, the endure, and it's those that endure who are saved. Jesus' challenge, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, is saying, those of you who want to hear what I'm saying, listen carefully. Rather than taking up the sword, grasping hold of the leadership of Israel, Jesus was spreading a different kingly vision. The vision of the ordinary, humble sower. I don't know how you perceive that peace will reign, that justice will be done, but Jesus points forward to a time when that will be so, when the rightful king will rule, and it comes through the lowly seed, the word of God. The secret of the kingdom of God is to participate in his ministry, to believe and follow him, to be a sower of the word, just as Christ himself was a sower of the word. But equally, as we listen to Jesus' initial command, that command to listen, we are reminded that first and foremost, we are to apply this parable to ourselves before we start making comments on where others stand. In this Advent time, as we think about Christ's coming in inconspicuous circumstances, as man to this earth, and his second coming when he will return in glory as king. Let me ask you, how will you receive the word of God this Christmas? Will you hear the story and dismiss it outright? Will you receive it with joy only to let it wither, perhaps entangled by the many pressures and concerns of life? Or will you let it abide in you? Let the kingdom of God advance in your life and in the society in which you live. Be transformed by that tiny seed that is planted in you when you hear the word of God. Will you be amazed at this picture of Jesus the preacher? And will you let his word live in you so that you will be super abundantly fruitful? I hope I pray that our ears, our hearts, are open to this kingdom message again, this Advent. Amen.